And the, really the key to learning that book of the Bible is, is learning that breakdown of that particular book. Obviously, we've talked about it many, many times, the Bible itself uh, has its own breakdown that if you want to figure it out, you've got you to get it in the right uh, breakdown or the right sections. The Bible calls this rightly dividing the word of truth, and it's so in, vitally important if you're ever going to figure it out. And we talked about how that Romans itself has its own breakdown. I gave you that breakdown when we started the book of Romans. And I told you that many times each chapter uh, has breakdowns that the chapter itself uh, falls into that really helps you break down and understand how the chapters themselves lay out. I, don't, I would be hard-pressed today to find another chapter that has more material in it uh, than Romans chapter 8, at least from a practical point of view. You know, there's only 39 verses in it, but my fear is that uh, as I was looking at this when, we st when I started putting it together, I thought to myself, my goodness, I mean, um, I could almost preach every verse. I mean, has is just loaded. I mean, it could all wind up being 39 sermons out of this chapter. There's so much material in it. But I showed you how that, as far as grasping it, and you should have it in your Bible by now if you're staying up week by week, the book of Romans in chapter 8 breaks down into four sections. I told you that section 1, which is verses 1 through 14, deals with a great victory in our life and a great practical section. Section 2, which will run around verses 15 through 22, will deal with the uh, first adoption in our, in, that we find in the book of Romans. Remember I told you that the theme of Romans chapter 8 is the two adoptions that uh, take place in your life. One of them took place the day you got saved. The second one will take place when the rapture takes place and God redeems your body and changes it into His glorious incorruptible body, and that'll be uh, the section, third section will be verses 23 through 32, which is your adoption of your body. So we have the first section, which deals with a great practical thing. The second section deals with your spiritual adoption. The third section deals with your physical adoption, the glorification of your body. And then section 4, uh, verses 33 through 39, uh, deals with the end result of being in Christ. Uh, it really focuses on the relationship with Christ. I think that if you want to do anything at all to prepare yourself, uh, kind of get yourself in a mindset for Wednesday night, New Year's Eve, I suggest that you uh, uh, read verses 33 through 39 uh, of the book of Romans, uh, and uh, chapter 8, and, and just really let that speak to you this week because it really is the great passage that shows you what we have in Christ, the oneness that we have. It's some of the greatest material uh, that you're ever going to find on, on showing you the great doctrine of eternal security. And I told you that before, that when you, you come up against somebody who believes that they can lose their salvation, you're basically dealing with someone who doesn't know very much about the Bible. You should see now and understand, as we've come through the great chapters in Romans, that the key to eternal security is not having your key verses that you battle somebody with, the key to understanding the doctrine of eternal security is simply understanding how you got saved in the first place. Once you know what transpired with your body, your soul, and your spirit the day you got saved, you have to be an absolute idiot to think you could lose that. And of course, uh, you know, it's uh, so true today that so many people are caught up in that. Now, last week I showed you section one, and we looked at some of the greatest principles in a practical sense in all of the Bible. In fact, we talked about, the, the, you know, a successful Christian life, how that everybody wants that. And Romans chapter 8, in the first section, 1 through 14, 
is your absolute guarantee in writing if you do what the Word of God says. Uh, you will have success in your life, you will be fulfilled in your Christian life, and you'll have everything that God wants you to have. And they're, they're built on some great concepts. Also, in that great chapter, or in that passage, we talked about the fact that, uh, of condemnation for a Christian. That a Christian can be damned and condemned without ever going to hell. Because we know now that there's two types of condemnation. Two types of damnation. There's one of the soul, which an unsaved man or an unsaved woman experiences when they die without Christ. And then there's a condemnation or a damnation for believers of our flesh. That when we walk after the flesh instead of after the things of the Spirit of God, that it brings about a, an automatic law of sowing and reaping. And we many times get into a scenario where uh, our flesh uh, goes through the condemnation of walking after the things of this world instead of walking after the things of God. We, we got that great lesson also last week where we focused on the word the mind, the mind of the spirit versus the mind of the flesh. Your mind is your will which decides what you're going to do. And of course the end results of what you decide to do brings consequences with it when we walk after the flesh and not after the spirit. So that was a great section and I I think that uh, that is, without a doubt, in my own personal life anyhow, one of the greatest concepts that you're ever going to get into and understand when it comes to putting the Bible uh, together for a practical relationship. Well, today we're going to look at the second section. We're going to find that in verses 15 through 22, and uh, we're going to deal with the adoption of our soul. Now, I've already told you this, that there's two adoptions in the book of Romans. And uh, the theme of Romans chapter 8 in particular is the redemption of our body. But what he does is this. And God always does this when he begins to lay out and teach us the Bible. He gives us the whole context of what is really going to happen. But he's focusing on the redemption or the adoption of our body. But he includes in that the adoption of our soul. Just some incredible material. But I want to begin reading here in verses 15 through 18. And here again... We're probably not going to get past verse 15, and next week probably won't get past verse 16. Next week probably won't get past verse 17. It's going to be a, uh, it's going to be an incredible thing. There's so much in these passages, and we want to make sure we work our way through it. We're not in any kind of race to get through Romans. Uh, we to over go over this material without thoroughly laying it out would be a great injustice to the Word of God and to to you because it's so valuable to you. But here's what he says in verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, there it is, whereby we cry, <coughs> Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be also glorified together." And then a great verse. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, as I said, there's so much in here, and there's so much that we're going to have to just kind of wade through here, and, but there's some great material here. Let's look at verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we love you, Lord. We thank you for the time that we could take today to <clears throat> open up the Scriptures and to learn some great truths about uh, you and what you have for us. And Lord, help us to learn this great material. Help us to learn how not only to apply it to our own lives, but to apply it to the lives of people that we work with. 
people that we meet in our life that have the questions that, that we should have the answers to out of the Word of God. And Lord, I pray now, Father, that you'll, you'll open up our hearts and give us wisdom. Forgive us where we fail thee. Put us under the blood of Christ and use us, Lord, in a mighty way. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want you to turn over to the book of Galatians for a moment. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> now, I just read your verse 15. It says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, that word there where it starts out and talks about Stand fast, therefore. You've heard me talk to you many, many times, and you should have it laid out in your Bible about two of the greatest doctrines that you'll ever come across in the Bible, and that is the doctrine of your standing and your state. They are two of the greatest doctrines from which the foundation of the Word of God and everything that you and I believe work off of. And yet they are two of the most unknown doctrines. If you'd ask the average pastor today, uh, or the average Christian, to explain to you the doctrine of standing and the doctrine of state. They couldn't begin to do it. And yet they stand in pulpits every week and they teach people the Bible, and yet they do not understand the basic, fundamental, foundational truths by which the Bible itself and your relationship with Christ is built on. Your standing in Christ Jesus is the fact that the day you got saved, your soul was sealed under the day of redemption, and you are sinlessly perfect as far as your soul's concerned in your relationship with God. That's your standing. We sing a song, standing on the promises. All right? That's what your standing is. You're saved and your eternal security is based on the promises of the Word of God that you stand on. And that's why when he talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and he says there that we have not received the spirit of bondage again, uh, again to fear, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 picks up and says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty of Christ. That's your standing. Your standing this morning, if you're saved, is the fact that you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven, washed away, God has imputed His righteousness to you, and you stand this morning as far as your soul, adopted into God's family, and stand there this morning uh, in sinless perfection before Almighty God as far as your soul is concerned. Now, your state, that's something different. Some of you are from Kansas, some of you are from Missouri, some of you are from Arkansas. That's another whole deal. Your state is your relationship with Christ as far as your flesh is today. You see, your standing is fixed the day you got saved. Your state is a day-to-day -day thing. And your state in Christ Jesus is whatever state you're in, in your relationship with Christ. If you're walking after the Spirit, then your state is good. If you're walking after the flesh, then your state is not so good. You see, your state fluctuates with your personal relationship with God. Ah, but your standing never fluctuates. Your standing is sinless perfection. That's the difference between the old nature and the new nature. Your new nature is rooted in the Word of God the day you got saved, and you're standing in Christ Jesus and the promise of the Word of God. Your old nature, we've looked at it in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7. The great battle that we have. As Paul himself said, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things I shouldn't do, those are what I'm always doing. The things that I'm supposed to do, those are the things that I don't do. There's your state. There's your state. And uh, 
you're going to realize or come to the realization that when you got saved, you're standing in Christ Jesus. You're now in the liberty that Christ has made us free. And we never have to be entangled again in that bondage. Now, there's some great illustrations of this in the Bible. Since we're in the book of Galatians, I want you to turn back one chapter to Galatians chapter 4. And I want to show you uh, this bondage concept and how this thing lays out. Because this bondage is the sin that before you were saved held you captive. When you, before you were saved, you were held bondage by your, by your flesh and your sin. There is absolutely nothing you can do to get out of whatever situation you're in before you're saved. You may, have, you may be an alcoholic. You may have some particular problem that you struggle with in life. You know what? You will never overcome those things on your own. There's only one way you can get past those, and that is through a relationship with Christ of taking uh, your, uh, your soul and setting it free that you're no longer under bondage to the things of this world. That's what he's saying there in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Don't go back into that bondage as far as your flesh. He says, God, you haven't received the spirit of bondage. You received the spirit of God which sets you free. So why in the world do we as Christians who are saved live like the world? That's basically what he's saying. Now, there's a great example of this in the Bible in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, I want to begin reading here in verse 22. It says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. <clears throat> but he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, <clears throat> but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are two, the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, that's Hagar in the Old Testament, different between the spelling uh, from the Hebrew and the Greek coming into the English. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, that answereth to Jerusalem, which, is, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, they that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scriptures? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, this is a great passage for a number of reasons. Of course, if you know anything about your Bible at all, you know that historically and also doctrinally, what you're reading here is God's official position on what's going on in the Middle East. I don't know if you woke up to it this morning and turned the news on or not or checked life on planet earth before you uh, did anything else besides come to church, but uh, it looks like it's all going down the tubes again over in the Middle East. And uh, over there in the uh, Gaza Strip, they're ready to go to war again and going to fight again, and that thing is going to be a continuous thing. But in Galatians chapter 4, you have God's official, historically now, you have God's official position on what's going on in the Middle East. 
And this is how God views the situation over there. This is God's official opinion and statement on it, dealing with the Muslims and uh, all of this going on. And, uh, of course, we know now from this story, we kind of get a background of what uh, we're dealing with, and God kind of takes you back and shows you how the thing goes. Now, we know that Muslims come into existence from a guy by the name of Muhammad. And Muhammad lives around 570 A.D. to about 632. It was Muhammad who come to the point where he gave birth to what we know as, as Islam today, from which the Muslims came from. And uh, Muhammad, you know, uh, he, he, claimed, uh, in his, uh, he claimed to have a vision with the, the angels, you know, and all of these things. And he was told to him, and his claim is that he is in a direct line of ancestry from Abraham. Therefore, he set himself up as one of the prophets. What we're having over in the Middle East right now is a battle uh, for uh, Jerusalem and for the, what we call the Holy Land. Truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, we don't have a map up here right now, but the Jews only have a very small, almost a, a fingernail uh, size part of the land of which really belongs to them. This fight that's going on over there in the Gaza Strip, Gaza Strip belongs to them. They gave up the Golan Heights here about a year ago. That belongs to them. <clears throat> Everything that they've got, the West Bank, all the way up. In fact, if you put it on a map and look it, you'd find that the land grant that was originally given to Abraham, which is what God still holds to as their land, and they're going to get it in the millennium, would run all the way from on the uh, west side over there where Egypt is, all the way over to where what we know as Baghdad today. Baghdad today. And then it would go up in a kind of a pyramid shape all the way up almost to uh, Turkey. Uh, and everything in that land is what God gave to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And that land grant has never been rescinded. When we look at the Middle East today and we look at uh, what we know as Pakistan, what we know as Uzbekistan, what we know as Iraq and Iran, what we know as Saudi Arabia, and all of those nations over there, I don't know how to tell you this, but that land that those nations are occupying belonged to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. In fact, you can go back in Ezekiel from Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. He'll tell you geographically where every one of those things line out and who it belongs to. Uh, you can get Clarence Larkin's book back there in the back, his book on dispensational truth. Clarence Larkin has it laid out for you on the land grant and shows you where each tribe is, what portion of the land they're going to get during the millennial reign of Christ. And it's, it's an incredible concept. Israel has just got a toehold. They've just got a small little piece of it less than the size of the state of Texas. And yet every nation around them is a Muslim nation. Every nation around them wants them out of there to the point where they're very vocal about nuking the Jews and it should destroy the Jews off the face of the earth. Why? Because Jerusalem is important to, was important to the Muslims, or it is important to the Muslims, because of how it fits in this thing with Muhammad. Muhammad, uh, Jerusalem is the third holiest city in the religion of Islam. First is Mecca. Second is Medina. And then thirdly is Jerusalem. Now, why do, they, why do they want Jerusalem so much? You know, when they pray, they pray toward Mecca. That's where uh, he had the vision. But why is Jerusalem? Why is Jerusalem 
so important. It's because from Jerusalem is where that when Muhammad supposedly went up to heaven. And you know he went up to heaven uh, on a, in, a, in a night from Jerusalem on a winged horse. By the way, that winged horse name was Barak. And that winged horse carried him up to heaven. And of course, it, it much uh, shadows uh, the Lord Jesus Christ when he went up to heaven and when he comes back on a white horse in Revelation chapter 11. But Jerusalem is part of their, of their whole religious system. When Muhammad came into power, and, and, and truth of the matter is, Islam never really caught on much till after his death. And then it began to unite all the Muslim tribes, and they began to see how that they could have a, a platform from which they could have power. So they kind of united themselves, and today it's, it's come into the form of, of, uh, of the Muslim religion. Now, you know, and people will argue, and I'm certainly oversimplifying this, but people will tell you, they'll say, well, you know what? There's many, many, many fashions of the Muslims, and you can't put them all in one category. Well, that may be true. But let me tell you one category, I don't care what they believe. And they fight back and forth, just like you and your brother and sisters fight back and forth. They have squabbles against, and they kill each other, and they fight against each other, and they have land war, just like Baptists have church splits, you know. But I'll tell you, no matter how many different segments of Muslims you want to categorize them and put them in, I'll tell you what every group has in common, and they will quit fighting among themselves and unite for this one common cause. And there's really two parts to it. The first cause is to wipe out Israel. They'll all agree that Israel has to go. The second one is they all agree that you and I got to go. And on those two things, no matter what differences they have, and you can point out, well, you know what, in theory there's so many different groups of Muslims and you can't label them all. I'll label them all in one fashion. Every one of them, no matter what they believe, will rise to the occasion to wipe out the nation of Israel first and anybody out of that of the Western Hemisphere that does not believe what they believe. That's what their calling is. When Muhammad, after he got off the scene uh, uh, and, and it began to develop itself, uh, the Muslim faith uh, come up, built itself into six basic concept. They call them the six pillars of Islam. You'll find that every false religion always has some four or five things that it, it builds off of that aren't true, that aren't in the Bible. When you find it, when you're talking to a Catholic, you'll find a Catholic is built on five or six sacraments. You'll, you'll, deal, with a, you'll deal with a Calvinist, he'll have, the, he'll have the, the five or six points of Calvinism. None of them are in the Bible. But you've got to prop yourself up with something so when the Muslim faith comes around, you know, they build it on six pillars of Islam. You know, the, the creed of Islam. Prayer five times a day facing Mecca. Ramadan, the fasting month that they have. Alms to the poor. The annual pilgrimage to Mecca. And of course, jihad, which is their holy war. And when you begin to look at all of this down through here, now that's the historical significance of it. But in this passage, you see, the bond woman here that he's talking about, that's Hagar. You remember the story of Hagar, don't you? Abraham and Sarah, and she didn't have any children, and she was barren. And so Sarah got the bright idea to give Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, who was an Egyptian. So we have an Egyptian and, and Abraham takes the Egyptian, and they have a child together, and now we've mixed the Jews with the Egyptians, and the boy that comes out of that union, his name is Ishmael. And it comes from Hagar. 
The free woman here that is talking about, uh, the free woman and connected with a promise would be Sarah or Sarai, depending on where you read it, same woman. And she, later on, when she does give birth, she produces, she produces Isaac. And Isaac is the promised seed that within Isaac's line is found the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the prophets. Isaac, Jacob, all down through the line you're going to find in the line of Isaac, the promised seed. So what we hear here, what, and what the Muslims do, is they look at Hagar, the bondwoman, Ishmael, her son. Muhammad, what he did is he said, I'm in a direct line through Abraham of Ishmael. And you're all the way back in Genesis. Those two boys never got along. All through the history of the Bible, they never got along. And that's why we have the problems there today. You know what the Muslims have done? They've taken this Bible right here and all the promises, and there's just hundreds of them, all the promises that were given to Israel through Isaac. They have taken out now, and they say that those promises are not to Isaac, but those promises are to Ishmael. That's where the conflict is. The conflict is simply over Genesis, where Abraham had two sons, one through an Egyptian bondwoman, the other one through a free woman, and it was Sarah, and he produced two children. One from the bondwoman and one from the free woman. The bondwoman, son in time, becomes down, becomes a nation. Muhammad shows up. And when Muhammad shows up, he puts together the fact that I'm in the line. Therefore, those promises are to us. And up to that point, the issue had just been a, a historical one of the new nations or the two groups of people not getting along. No, no, no. When that took place... It became a crusade to wipe out the nation of Israel. And this is the issue. The real promised seed in the Muslims in the Middle East. As I said earlier, the Koran has a line of prophets. Starting with Adam and then running up through Abraham. Moses is one of the prophets. Christ is one of the prophets. And of course, Muhammad, affectionately known as Big Mo. He's one of the prophets also. And of course, you want, you know, I, I was thinking about this. A couple of weeks ago, we talked a, a, a whole session on bad choices. And we talked about how that the bad choices we make can have some incredible extenuating circumstances. And you know, when we talk about that, when we talk about that, we think about that, I know I do with it what you do with it. We, 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 we hear what I say, but we just kind of can't put it in a point of reference. Brother, here's the point of reference. Abraham made a wrong choice. He hearkened to Sarah and he took Hagar. He produced a child, Ishmael. And yet, for the next 4,000 years, that would bring us up to 2008 going into 2009. For the next 4,000 years, the events that we're seeing right now that are going to literally end this world, the events that we're seeing right now that probably in this next year are going to take a lot of Americans' life someplace in this country. The events we're seeing right now, that as you get ready to come to church, that are spilling over there, and that they, on the West Bank, where they're going to go to war, they're going to continue to go to war, they're going to try to wipe them out, wipe us out, and we're going to, we're going to be looking out over our shoulder to the rapture of the church. The very events that are transpiring right there have been going on for 4,000 years and traced back to one man's bad choice and bad decision over what the Word of God said. Now you can take that and translate that into your own life and make a bad choice and pay for it the rest of your marriage. Pay for it the rest of your life. 
pay for it. The rest. There's some consequences, some bad choices that you make that carry around for a long time. And my, what a great example that is. I wonder how many, if you could, if you could categorize it, in historically, I wonder how many billions of men and women, billions of kids, Billions of people in 4,000 years have lost their lives because of the ongoing conflict for 4,000 years, all based on one man's decision around what God told him to do. It's incredible. It's incredible. Galatians chapter 4 is God's official statement on the war in the Middle East. And of course, uh, I I love verse 30. Verse, Verse 30 is one of these places in the Bible that are worth gold to me. Not that all of it isn't, but I love this. This is one of these statements that you can use anywhere you go, anytime, and it always sets the whole context in the right course. Look what it says. Nevertheless, what saith the Scriptures? Now, when push comes to shove, that's your answer. I was, I was listening this week, and I, and I have nothing against this guy. Uh, I, I, I was listening this week to the news and all the flap because Obama wants to have Rick Warren at his, uh, at his inaugural do the prayer. And everybody's up in arms because Rick Warren is, is you know, anti-same-sex marriage and all that stuff, you know. Rick Warren is not a Baptist, and he's what we call, we call it evangelical. In fact, if you're paying attention, us Baptists are off the radar screen. You know that? It's all evangelicals now. You know why? It used to be in the 50s. Harry Truman was a Baptist. Do you know that? He may not have been a very good one, but he was a Baptist. <laughs> Baptists are gone now. We've been removed, oh, and it's true. We've been, we've been set aside now into the heretical ranks. We're the, we're the cult groups. See, that's Baptist today. The real mainstream of Christianity is the evangelicals. And you hear it all the time. Well, you know what? He's playing to the evangelical. The evangelical movement. You never hear the Baptist movement. You never hear, because Baptists are, we're radical. We're way out here in left field. We still believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, few of us. We still believe there's a literal hell. We, we still, we take a hard line against things. Evangelicals don't take a I had to laugh at Rick Warren this week. And they had him on the news. And, and I like the guy. I don't have anything against him. But it shows you where the mindset is. It shows you how you lose your perspective about things in the Bible. They asked him about the issue, how, about the prayer, you know, and all the gays that were just in, just in the liberals, were just absolutely touring about the thing. And he says, and his answer was, and his answer was, well, you know what? I, I'm not mad at anybody. I, I, I love them. I disagree with them. I disagree with a lot of people. Because I disagree with somebody, why does that make it that I, that I hate those people just because we disagree? Now, you know what? Some, that sounds like a good answer. You know that's not an answer if you're a Bible-believing Christian? Please. Who cares what Rick Warren's personal opinion is about gay marriage? Please. Who cares if he likes them or he doesn't like them? Why would a man allow himself to get drunk? You see, the moment you make that statement, you have just put yourself into it. What he should have said, and what I would have said, by the way, if they would have asked me my question, I wouldn't have said, well, I'm, I love everybody. I wouldn't have said, for God so loved the world. I wouldn't have said, well, you know what? I love them, the fact they don't love me. You know what I would have said? I'd have simply used my little card. What saith the Scriptures? 
Forget what I believe. Forget what I think. What saith the Scripture? That's all that matters. But you can't do that and be, a, be, be, be popular. If he'd have said, what saith the Scriptures? Well, I'll tell you what, they'd have cut him off so fast because he, a moment, he immediately takes himself out of it and puts God into it. Remember when Salem, Sarah Palin was running for vice president with, with what's-his-face, and they were... And they were up there. They were just so upset. When she, they asked her, do you believe in God? And, they, and she had made a statement when she was governor that they had a situation up in Alaska. I don't know what it was. And she had prayed. She had prayed that God would, would uh, oh, I know what it was. It was the soldiers over in the war over in Iraq and Iran. And she was praying for God's hand in that. And the news media just got all over the fact. We can't have anybody in office that would base what they do with the country on the answer they get from God. Hey, if you ain't figured it out yet, in America, God is out of everything. He's out of everything. And you might as well get set. 2009, you want to have a great relationship with God? I want you to have one. But you might as well get set. We're on the outside looking in. And you and I were what we believe by standing on the Bible. We are a burr under the world's saddle. We're always going to be an issue. Because when everybody's trying to get together and everybody wants to be nicey-nicey, we're going to have these radical people who stand up and say, Hey, what saith the Scriptures? I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you think. What does God say about it? Because that's our final authority, see? Now, I can't tell you how unpopular that is. But I'm going to tell you it's going to get even more unpopular as time goes on. Time goes on. We, that's why you can't find a politician. If a politician says he's a Christian, I tell you what, I, I, he may be. I, I'm not saying he's not. I can't look into a man's heart. But you know what? I'll tell you what. You are a mealy-mouthed Christian. I'd be ashamed of yourself. What would happen to the president if they get up there and somebody said, what's your official policy going to be when you come into office about the Middle East? And the guy said, well, don't worry about me. What saith the scriptures? <laughs> whoever are the leaders of this country, and you better get this, whoever the leaders are of this country, they're staying in power and they're staying with what they have and doing what they want to do First and foremost depends on one thing, disting them themselves from this Bible and God. The farther they get away, the more popular we're going to be. Oh, they'll be conservative. What does that mean? I'm not interested in being a conservative. I'm interested in saying what the scriptures say. Whatever that makes me, I'll be satisfied, but it's what the book says. Well, we take a conservative point of view. What does that mean? Somebody says, well, he's a really good guy. Compared to who? Mussolini? Well, he did a really good job. Compared to who? You see, it all comes down to your perspective of life. And this book represents something the world doesn't want. It's a perspective. So when it comes down to the greatest issue, when it comes down to the greatest issue that you and I are going to face today, which probably in the next couple of years, if Jesus doesn't come, you're going to get a good taste of it in our own land, in your own soil. Make 911 look like a 4th of July party. It doesn't matter what you and I think. 
It's God versus the United Nations, the PLO, every nation on the face of this planet. It's God against the Vatican. It's God against the politician. It's God against anybody who won't stand up when it's faced with something that is so clear and say, what saith the Scriptures? Because the Scriptures have lost its power and nobody believes it's authoritative anymore. You know what God says? You know what God's official stand on it is? I love it. Put it on CNN. Give this to, give this to, give this to Bill O'Reilly and, and everybody else out there. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And God doesn't care what the Vatican said when they signed a concordance that said there should be a PLO state or a Palestinian state. God didn't care about that at all. When the president gets in the office, the last one and this one says, we will recognize a Palestinian state. What saith the scriptures? God says, no recognition whatsoever. Drop kick them through the goalpost of life. Kick them out. You know what God's going to do when he comes back? Going to kick them out. You know what that means? None of this means anything. None of it. Whatever you build, however big you can build it, however nice you build it, God can flatten it in 16 seconds. And God's official position is it, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Hey, that's their land. God gave it to them. And I don't care who says what or who saw what vision or what dream and concocts some religion because of it. What saith the scriptures? God's going to kick them out. Look at verse 31. Now look at verse 31. Here comes the practical application. I have a little history lesson there. Now here comes the practical side of it. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, based on verse 31, you see what he's doing? He just gave you a history lesson. He gave you and me a history lesson talking about the land of Palestine, talking about Ishmael from Hagar, Isaac from Sarah, how one persecuted the other, how he's going to kick the other one out, now remember, remember, the theme that we're talking about in Romans 8 in our verse 15 is not going back under bondage. Don't lose sight of that. Now we've just talked about a woman who is a bondwoman. What does that mean? She's under bondage. And a free woman, what does that mean? She's free. She's not under bondage. Then he says in verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Ah, now comes the spiritual application. See what he's doing? He gave you a history lesson. Now he's going to take that history lesson and make it into, an, he uses the word there, an allegory. You know what an allegory is? An allegory is a picture of something. An allegory is what we call a type in the Bible. An allegory is God's going to tell you a story, and from that story, the allegory of that story is going to show you a great truth. We find them all through the Bible. All through the Bible. And he's telling us that these things, verse 24, which things are an allegory. And that's why this story represents in such a great way what we just read in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Because the Bible says that we have not received again the spirit of bondage unto fear. And the allegory is this. Ishmael and Hagar, picture of your flesh. Where are they from? Hagar was from Egypt. What's Egypt in the Bible? Type of the world, see? So Ishmael and Hagar picture my flesh, which I was under bondage to at one time. Isaac and Sarah, they represent my new nature through the promises of the Word of God and the promised seed with all God's blessing. 
Notice in verse 26 the reference to New Jerusalem. That's the abode of the church. So when he's saying, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free, he's getting ready to take a historical fact, turn it into an allegory which makes a spiritual picture and a spiritual principle of showing you that Hagar and Ishmael are a picture of your flesh. Isaac and Sarah are a picture of your new nature through the promise of God. And what did he say in the passage? The two warred together. They had conflict all the time. As your flesh and my flesh does with my new nature and my, my soul all the time. Look at verse 31. Or verse 29. But as, but as then he that was born after the flesh. That would be Ishmael through Hagar. Type of the world persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. That'd be Isaac. Look what he says. Even so, it is now. See the comparison? He's taken an Old Testament story that actually took place, which is a story that is running not only historically, but in a prophetic sense, playing itself out today, and showing you not only the reason why the events around this country and around this world are unfolding the way they are, because of all the way back in Genesis 18 and 19, but clearly showing you and I that it's an allegory. It's a picture of the battle and the warfare that goes on inside of you. And what he's saying is, what he's saying then, verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. See that? Now, put it in context. Look at, look at, the next, look at 5.1, which is where we started. Look at 5.1. Let me read 31 again. So then, brethren, I'm going to read 29 and 31. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit... So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Look at 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, because of what he just said. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know what he's saying? He says, why in the world would you, after you got saved, recognize that you were set free, realize that you didn't have to be under the bondage of your flesh anymore, Realize that you could have a victorious Christian life. Realize that you could have everything that God had for you. You could have all the blessings. You could have everything that he wanted you to have. Why in the world would you want to entangle yourself back under the yoke of that bondage? That's the question. And that spirit of bondage in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 is typified by the, by the story of Ishmael and Isaac through Hagar and Sarah. One represents the flesh, that'll be the bondwoman. One represents the new nature, that's the promised seed, that's your soul and my soul, saved by the promises of the Word of God. And then, then, then look at this. And, and then through an adoption, spiritually, we have left the devil's family and its bondage, and now we're in God's family, free from the bondage by the promises of God. Verse 15, back to Romans 8. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out before. All right, he gave us an allegory. That allegory showed us the first thing we need to see is the battle under a story about Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah. We now know that, that one represents the flesh, one represents, uh, one represents the spiritual side of things. But yet we've got an adoption here we've got to look at. It says, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage. Again, to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba, Father there, let me tell you, and you want to you know, get these 
somehow into your Bible so you, you have this thing laid out. But Abba Father, the word Abba means great, with great distinction. And it's, it's like somebody saying Holy Father or, or High Father, or, or, but it, it, it's, it's an addendum onto the word Father that adds to it a significance of greatness. Abba Father. And he says, therefore, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That spirit of adoption, notice, the spirit of adoption. Remember when we talked a while back about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I showed you from the Bible that the baptism of the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with water? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is by one spirit. Are we all baptized into one body to put you into the body of Christ? All right. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the spirit. Uh, he's talking about the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption is defined as the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God where God spiritually takes you from the devil's family. John chapter 8, verse 44. You have your father the devil, and the lust of your father he shall do. He was a murderer from the beginning and a out of the truth because there's no truth in him. The Bible says that we were adopted out of that family spiritually into God's family. Now I want to show you this adoption through another great allegory in the Bible. You know, <clears throat> at some point in your life, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe it'll take you four or five years to do it. I don't know. Some of you probably are on the way to doing it now already. <clears throat> but one of the things, and I really, I really don't know how to, I don't know of any way to teach this to you. I can teach you what I'm doing now, and you almost have to take it and, and, and learn how you do all, each one the same way. Uh, but at some point in your life, you're going to have to be able to sit down and read the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, and you're going to have to be able to see for yourself these allegories, these types, these pictures. One of the greatest things that's missing in Bible teaching and Bible preaching today is men who stand in the pulpit and do not understand typology in the Bible. You're going to find, or I have found over the years, that every great doctrine in the Bible, every great doctrine in the Bible that is found in Romans or found in, you know, First and Second Timothy, every great doctrine found in the Bible that's given to you and to me, you can go someplace in the Old Testament or many times in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can find a story. And that story is so designed by the Holy Spirit of God and put in there that it illustrates as a picture this great doctrine. You know why the Bible becomes hard for so many people? I'll tell you why. Because the mode of teaching young men the Bible and young women the Bible today is a very simple mode. You know what it is? It's a mode of education. And the problem is, the Bible is a book that does not, does not respond well to education. This sounds like a terrible thing. The smarter you get, the harder time you have with the Bible. The dumber you are, the better chance you have of finding out something in the Bible. Now you know my secret to knowing the Bible so well. Look how stupid I am. But there's a lot of truth in that. That is absolutely the truth. Because what education, what happens is you get educated beyond your intelligence. And what you do, you go to a seminary, Bible college, some structured, organized system outside the local church, and basically, they take, the, they take the theological approach to the Bible. They take the educated approach to the Bible. They take the, and, and the truth of the matter is, you always don't want to ever take that approach. You know, you go to Bible college, they talk about study ontology, angiology, ethnology. 
They talk about, they talk about uh, uh, hermeneutics. They talk about uh, apologetics. All of those different things. And you go and you take those classes, and then I, I, I looked at those things and I thought to myself, wow, never one time did I ever hear Jesus, when he was trying to reach the masses, ever use the word apologetics or study ontology or hemorrhoid nudics. <laughs> never one time did I hear God ever address anybody that way. You know what Jesus did in every case? Whenever he was talking to them, you know what he did? He gave them stories. He gave them real life things that they could identify with. He never talked in terms that they didn't understand. He always gave them natural stories. Now, many of you have kids. When your kids reach to be around, oh, I don't know, five or six, and you start to teach them the Bible, I certainly hope, I certainly hope that when you start to teach your kids the Bible, you know, you don't go back there in the back and buy them a wide margin King James Bible and sit down and, and open them up and say, okay, now kids, you know, you got, you know, you got, you, you, you got uh, two little guys there, five or six or somewhere in there, you know, and you say, okay, now we're going to have a little time in the Bible. Now let me talk to you about angelology here and study ontology. We're going to combine the after effects of, of, of all this. And, and, and you know what? And I'm going to throw in a little apologetics at the end. And the kid said, that's good, daddy, because mommy said you always apologize to her. That's good. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Is that how you do it? No, no. You know, you know what you do? You go over and you buy you one of those Bible books for children. Do you ever see those Bible books for children? Here's how it works. You want to teach your child the story of Adam and Eve. You know what you do? You go buy one of these big books and you open it up and the print's real big. And there's no big words in it. And you, you, you start to read the story of Adam and Eve and then you turn the page and you know what you got? You got a full color illustration of a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. And sometimes it'll be there, you know, and Adam and Eve will be standing there, you know, and there'll be a tree there with fruit on it, you know, and, and it, it, the picture illustrates what you just read to that child because the child has no ability to just read that and then formulate the picture. They know that. So you know what they do? They write a book that's easy to understand in the story and then give you a picture to illustrate what you just read. You go to the next one, Noah and the Ark. And you'll read that story there, and they turn the page, and there will be a big old ark with a big old painting of all the animals. Noah sitting up there with a, you know, a, 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 one of those shepherd crocs, and, and he's coming up there, and all those animals walking up there. And a the kid will see that, and he'll, he'll read the story, he'll see the picture, and he grasps the concept of it. Well, that's how God wrote his Bible. He didn't write it to scholars. He wrote it, and what did you, uh, Jesus one time said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of it. I guarantee you, if you went to Calvary Bible College over here, down with the Midwest Theological Seminary, or you went to Bob Jones University, or you went to, uh, uh, and you wanted to say, I want to, be, I want to teach Bible in your school, and you say, well, that's good, we, we, we're short some Bible, can you show us some of your curriculum, and you broke out some of those big picture books, <laughs> so this is really like this one, look at Daniel lying down, doesn't that lion look nice, look at it, isn't that nice, they laugh, at, do what you're doing, they say, well, what is this guy? That's the Bible. That's why types are so important. He gives you a great doctrine over here. Like he just says in Romans 8, 15, he says, you know, he says that we're supposed to be free and not come back under the bondage. So what did he do? He, then he gives you a story about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. And the story illustrates the truth. And then you say, oh, I see it now. I grasp it. Well, there's a great story about your adoption. The Bible's filled with them. I, I, I could start in Genesis and I mean just go through there and it's probably thousands if not tens of thousands of great 
pictures in that Bible that illustrate truth. But we're talking about your adoption. We're talking about how God adopted you into his family. How do you grasp that? Well, back in the Old Testament, there's a great story. And I want you to turn back now in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I know of no other place in the Bible that lays out in every detail and illustrates the adoption. I mean, I could spend the rest of our morning giving you verses and you would still not get the picture. Because in tough places like this, God always paints us a picture. He always gives us an allegory. He always gives us a type that when I lay it out for you, it illustrates the great truth that you'll walk out of here saying, I got it now. I understand it now. Not because of the great verses, but wow, look at that picture. That picture brought it into perspective for me. And I know of no other place in the Bible that lays out in every detail and <clears throat> every illustration the adoption of our soul talked about in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, other than the story of Mephibosheth. Now, I want, you, I want to read this to you here, and you can follow along, and <clears throat> you're going to want to get some of this in at another time maybe and break it down, but let's see what it says here. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they called uh, Ziba, uh, called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not any, yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? Zeba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. <clears throat> and he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou should look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servant shall till the land for him. And thou shalt bring in the fruits of the master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table, and he was lame on both his feet. You know, I want to show you one of the greatest places in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyhow, that is a picture of your spiritual adoption. I don't know of another place greater in the Word of God that lays it out than the life of a man named Mephibosheth. It is without a doubt the greatest study of the grace of God in our lives. And for me personally, it's, it's, it's my, one of my favorite in the Bible. And you'll see why, uh, how it's such a great picture of our spiritual adoption. 
Now, as all types and stories in the Bible and allegories, you notice how when we did the uh, <coughs> one about Hagar, I showed you how each piece of the puzzle, <coughs> that may be a little more complicated. Oh, this is easy. This is easy. You've been paying attention around here for a year and <coughs> doing your work and <coughs> getting your Bible. You at least you had to already have this outline down before I get there. Some things we need to see here and understand to put this picture together. But wow, what a picture. We got four main principal players here that you need, we need to identify. First one we got is David. You know what David represents? David's a type of Christ here. David in this story represents the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he represents. And then the second thing we've got to look at and get defined here, and this should be easy for you too, is the house of Saul. The house of Saul will represent the devil's family. Remember Saul was David's enemy? <clears throat> Saul tried to kill David. Saul tried to keep David from getting the kingdom. Saul in your Bible is a picture of the devil. In one case, some cases, a picture of an unsaved man, but certainly in the overall procedure by which he operates, he's a picture of the devil trying to keep David a type of Christ from ever getting to the throne. Then we have Zeba. And Zeba's going to represent for us a type of the Holy Spirit of God. We'll see that in a moment. Then we have old Mephibosheth. You know who Mephibosheth represents? He represents me and you before we got saved. He represents you and I when we were under the bondage of our sin. He's the grandson of Saul. And as the grandson of Saul, as I've already said, who was David's enemy, it's a picture of any unsaved man or any unsaved woman before they got saved, but it's a picture of your life and my life when we were under the bondage, when we were God's enemies because we were in the wrong family picture of you and me why it's so special to me every time I'm coming through the Old Testament and I'm looking for something or I'm reading through it or I'm doing something together and I just happen to come through second uh, Samuel here and I happen to bump in the nine I have to stop and read this story that's how much it means to me now you know what the name of Phibosheth means it means breathing shame Everything about Mephibosheth was unclean. Even his name represents the shamefulness of his condition. The very name means that every word out of his mouth was a shame to him and before God. The very name Mephibosheth means breathing shame. Verse 3 tells us that he's lame on his feet. He has no ability to walk under his own power. He has no ability to go anywhere on his own. He's like you and I before we were saved. We were handicapped in our walk. We could have no walk with God. We could do nothing with God. We could have no relationship with God. We were lame on our feet. And I don't have to tell you what the, the lame and your feet have to do in the Bible. Look at verse 8. He says, what do you want to do with a dead dog like me? A dog. There's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Proverbs, where it says that an unsaved man is like a dog that returns again to his vomit. Everything in Meshavah, from his name to his physical condition, shows you and me before we were saved. He's under the bondage. 
bondage of being lame. The bondage. You ever compared it to? Mephibosheth and David stand in stark contrast to each other. Total contradiction between one and the other. Mephibosheth has absolutely nothing. David has everything. Mephibosheth is a beggar. David is a king. Mephibosheth lives in filthy rags, which is the picture of our righteousness, the Bible says. David wears the robe of a king, fine linen, all of the great tapestry of the day. They adorned himself in it. Mephibosheth's the hopeless cripple. David is whole and complete. He's David's enemy by birth. Just like the first birth that you and I put us into the devil's family and we were God's enemy by a birth that put us into the devil's crowd. Yet David says in verse 1, Oh, praise the Lord. Is there yet any of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to? Ah, you got to look at verse 3 and 4 at Ziba. Ziba's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. Notice, David says, call Ziba, and he says, Is there anybody out there left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness? Notice. Notice verse 3, Ziba knows who he is, Ziba verse 4 knows where he is, and Ziba verse 3 knows what condition he's in. That's the Holy Spirit of God. When Christ looks down for you, it's the Holy Spirit of God that tells Christ your condition, where you're at, what your needs are. He sends the Holy Spirit of God out to get you Wednesday night. One of the things we're going to do, we potted around this several times. But when you leave starting year 2009, you're going to have firmly in your mind and understand what the three offices of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit do. That is absolutely the most fouled up, messed up. Every concept in the world today is wrong based on what the Scripture says. And if you're going to have a right relationship with God, You need to know who does what in your life. David didn't go out and look for him. David asked a man who's a type of the Holy Spirit, is there anybody? And that man, a type of the Holy Spirit, knows who it is, where he's at, what kind of condition he's in. That's the Holy Spirit of God the day he reached down and looked into your heart and into your soul. Verse 5, David says, go get him. Look at verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, thy servant. You know what? He's just like you and I. First day God spoke to us. He falls on his face. You know what he thinks? You know what he thinks? He thinks that David has brought him in because David's going to have him killed. Because that was the standard operational procedure. Saul was David's enemy. Saul did all kinds of terrible things to stop David. 
And now Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Everybody's dead except Mephibosheth. And it would be stand to reason if you saw the Godfather. <laughs> you remember that part there where, where the, the, the little Coleone guy's a little guy, just a little kid, and, and she, this big guy over there killed his dad, killed his other brother. And the mother, she sneaks, comes in, and she begs for the life of the little guy. And she says he's stupid and retarded. Remember that part of the story? And this guy says, well, he says, yeah, he's stupid and dumb. Now, and he says he can't speak. He's dumb. And he's just a little guy. Before he came over to America, became the crime boss of the Lord of, you know. And he's over there, and she, he's just a little guy. He's just standing like this. And she's begging for this big conciero, whatever that is. She's begging, don't to kill. My last little boy, don't kill him. I'll make you a bigger pizza pie. Don't kill the kid. <laughs> and he says, kill the kid. You know what he says? He says, no, no. But he will grow up. And he will remember. And he will come back at some point when I'm not expecting it. And he will take his revenge. Kill the little kid. Little guy, little guy, kill him. Well, you know how that story works out. She pulls out a knife and goes to stab him. Blow her away with a shotgun. Kid runs down the road, gets on a boat to New York City, and becomes runs everything. This is a great country we live in. <laughs> you can be anything you want to be. <clears throat> that's what that's what Mephibosheth's thinking. David's thinking. <clears throat> he says he sent him to get them, and they're going to bring me here, and they're going to kill him. And he falls down at his feet, ready for that big <laughs> to come down, because he's thinking payback time. He thinks that David has brought him because someday David's thinking, yeah, he may be the last one and he may be lame on his feet. But he's going to grow up someday. He's going to blame me for Saul's death and everybody else, Jonathan's death, and he's going to come looking for me. So I'm going to take him out. That's why I want to know, is there any left of Saul's family? Bring him in. Give him a pair of cement overshoes. Bring him in. That's what he's thinking. Can you blame him? That stands for most of our concepts about God before we got saved. I've met people, before they got saved, they were scared to death. God going to come down and kill them because something they did. They were scared to death that the wrath of God was going to come down and just destroy their life. And, and, they, and, and they, they don't understand. Yes, you're unsaved, and if you die in your sins, you die and go to hell. But God doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants you to get saved. And just as Zeba type of the Holy Spirit, went and got Mephibosheth, brought him there, wasn't to kill him, it was to make him part of his family. And the first time God reached down and touched your sinful soul, first time God reached down and touched my ungodless soul, it wasn't to hurt me, it wasn't to, if I went to hell because of my choice, wouldn't because God sent me there. No, God like David looked around and he said, who can I show kindness to today? Me, me. Hey, O'Hare, me. He thought sure David was going to settle the old score. Have him killed. Wipe out the last of his enemies. Oh, look at verse 7. David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan's sake, thy father's sake. I will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table 
continually. Now, I'm pretty much a story type of guy. I love stories. I love stories that illustrate great truths. I wasn't there, and this ain't in the Bible. And you don't have to believe it. You don't want to believe it. I believe it. You believe enough other weird stuff that I don't believe I can believe this and be in the same par with you. I believe when they brought old Mephibosheth in, this is where I'm at. I believe everything in the Bible. I believe, I, I, I just, I know how these things go. I believe when they brought old Mephibosheth in there and he looks up there and he sees David, he puts him, he falls down there at his feet and he wants, he's going to ask for mercy. He's going to ask for mercy. He thinks, he's, he's just trembling with fear. I believe that he just, when he found out that David wanted to see him, and it wasn't like back then, Zeba went in and said, oh, by the way, David wants to bring you into his house. He's going to feed you, make fat you up and everything, you know. It was, David wants to see you. Oh, it's like getting a thick letter from the IRS. Can we have a meeting tomorrow morning, you know. <laughs> now, all they want to do is thank you for paying your taxes, but you go all through the night. Oh, I'm going to jail. Oh, oh Leavenworth. Oh, you know, oh, you know, where's, where's Ronnie Deutsch when you need her? Oh, you know. <laughs> He's scared to death. Now, personally, I believe this. I believe they brought him in there. He fell down at David's feet. David's type of Christ. Mephibosheth's type of me. And I believe that he fell down there, you know, he's just, he's, he's, he's shaking and he's shivering. He's sniveling. He know any, spec, any second he's going to hear the command of the king for him to be killed. And he looks down there and he, 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 he looks down at David's feet. And he sees those feet, the most beautiful feet you ever saw in your life. Because the Bible says beautiful were the feet of them that preach the gospel. See? And he looks at those shoes. Those shoes. He didn't have any shoes. And he looks at those diamond-studded shoes. Make Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz, look like a cheap $29.95 fire sale. You know, buy one pair, get the other one free. You know, and, and she looked down at those shoes that he wore were just absolutely beautiful. And he, he, he's, he's thinking and he's afraid, but he's focused on these shoes and these feet. The most beautiful feet you ever saw in your life. Right in the middle. Of those shoes are two beautiful red rubies. The most beautiful red rubies. And he thinks to himself, well, for a moment there, I thought that they were pools of blood on those feet, of those shoes. No, Mephibosheth, not in that day. But there was a coming a time when my David hung on the cross and those rubies on those shoes were replaced with the blood where the nails went into his feet. He's sitting down there and he's shaking about that time. He's waiting and David said, don't be afraid. I didn't bring you here to hurt you. I didn't bring you here to hurt you at all. I sent Zeba out to get you. He says, you know what? Your father, Jonathan, meant something to me. And I want to tell you something. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but one of the greatest studies you want to find, you want to find the revolt's verse, study David as a type of God the Father and Jonathan as a type of Christ and then find the promise that God made to Jonathan that carries over to Mephibosheth just like God made the promise through his son. I always thought it was strange that Mephibosheth got in because David, type of God the Father, had made a promise to a man whose name started with J, <coughs> Jonathan. Because God made a promise through his son, Jesus. And I got in on that promise. Because I was just like Mephibosheth at the feet. Deserved. He deserved it. He deserved. There was no reason not to expect that David was not going to kill him. No reason at all. No reason for a second. 
David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Look at verse 8. He still can't get it. He still can't believe it. He's, he's sure this is some trick. He's sure that, oh, I know what you're going to do. You're going to make me feel good. Then you're going to kill me. You're going to scare the fire out of me, bring me in, tell me it's going to be okay, and then when I'm walking out the door, shoot me in the back. He says, he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? You know what he finally did? He got, he got the place that we all have to get to. He had to see himself as he really is. He had to recognize that he deserved to be dead. He deserved to be killed. He realized that he was David's enemy through Saul. He probably knew nothing about the promise and the covenant that Jonathan and, and David had made. He's living in fear every day of his life. Look, like so many people looking down the road waiting for the soldiers. He hears a scuffle in the middle of the night and somebody accidentally comes to his door and works the lock thinking it's theirs and he thinks the soldiers are there. He, all his life he probably, and on top of that, he was lame. He couldn't run. He couldn't walk. He couldn't get out of Dodge. He was stuck. And finally there's a day when David sent for him. He bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? David said, I ain't going to hurt you. And he looks up and he says, But why? Why? And he says, Well, Mephibosheth, you don't understand it right now. But it's something called grace. Yeah, Mephibosheth. Yeah, you're Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And he was my enemy. I never was his enemy, but he was my enemy. I had chances to kill him and did not do it because I believe what the Bible said. And yes, yes, you are his grandson. And you, by the household of Saul, are my enemy. But you know what? You want to know why? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because where sin did abound, Mephibosheth, grace did much more abound. You're coming into my family. You're coming into my family. You're coming into my family. Oh, I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid, but you don't understand. For you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. Oh, we sing the song, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty goal that God did span at Calvary. At Calvary. When you and I, as Mephibosheth, got into the family of God. No, we were his enemy. We did not deserve it. But it was grace, grace, grace. Look at verse 11. Pick it up in verse 9, excuse me. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertaineth to Saul and all his house. Thou for, therefore in thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him till thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, Thy master's son shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, 
according to all that my Lord the King hath commanded his servant, so shall my servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of his sons. You know what you got there? Have you any idea what you got there? You know what you were just told? When God puts you into his family, it's the Holy Spirit of God, Zeba, who does the work for you. You don't have to go out and do it. You don't have to worry about all the problems in life. You got the promise because you're of the promised seed. It's Zeba, the Holy Spirit of God, and his sons that do everything. Where are you and I to be? We're to be at the table, in the bread, in the Word of God, with our fellowship. That's Song of Solomon. We're going to learn it Wednesday night. That's your job and my job. It's to be at the table, fellowship, eating his bread, the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit of God does everything for us. And we just sit back and get the fruit. But you see where you got to be to get that done? You got to be at the table. You got to be in fellowship. You got to be walking in the spirit, not into the flesh. You got to be in this world, but not of this world. You don't mind the things of the world. You mind the things of the spirit. A filthy, vile, breathing, shame, beggar named Methuselah, the son of David's greatest enemy, adopted into the king's family, never to beg again. Wow. Never to toil again, ever. Never. Unless I choose to. Never again do I have to bear the brunt of the heat. Oh, I'll go out and do it. But it's the Holy Spirit of God that unlocks the doors. He's the one that opens up the windows. He's the one that makes the pathway. My job is to stay at the table eating the bread. God adopted you that day, my friend, into his family. Thereby we cry, Abba, Father. Look at verse 13. So Mephibosheth. Dwelt in Jerusalem, for did eat continually at the king's table. Ha, ah, I love this part. And he was lame on both his feet. You see that thing? There it is. He got adopted in the family. Here's new nature. But he's still lame on his feet. He still got the old nature. But now he didn't have to try to walk anymore. You know why? Because <laughs> Zeba carried him everywhere he had to go. He didn't have to go down to the store because Zeba brought in everything he needed to eat. He didn't have to worry about one thing ever again. Why? Because Zeba and his sons took care of everything that he needed. And these are good words for a world that we're living in today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, we will sit at the king's table and we need to eat continually. And we're going to learn all about that Wednesday night. But there'll never be a day till Jesus comes and we get there. See, this is, talking about the, this is talking about the adoption, the first adoption. This is talking about the adoption of our soul, see? The day that you and I spiritually, when we were God's enemy, and through a new birth, God adopted us into his family. This is the adoption. I told you this story could tell it better than I could ever lay it out. 
But he's still lame. You know why? Because we haven't got to the second option yet when you get your new glorified body. The adoption of your soul. Because ladies and gentlemen, you and I are Mephibosheth. I had no idea about the song service this morning and didn't have any idea. Didn't coordinate with anything, with anybody. Yet God's Holy Spirit knows how way to go. My father is rich in houses and land. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hand. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold. His coffers are full. He has riches untold. I'm a child of a king. A child of the king. You see, because of what he did, he took me into his family. He allowed me in when I didn't deserve it. He brought me in when my name was breathing shame. He brought me in when I was against everything that he was. With Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the King. See, I'm Mephibosheth. My name was breathing shame, so was yours. When you want to understand the adoption that God's spiritually bringing you into his family, bringing you to the point where he took you out of the devil's family and brought you into his own. Oh, you can get all the verses in Romans 8 you want, but what you need as children is a picture of that. Something that now you'll never forget it as long as you live. You'll never hear the name of Phibosheth again and not think how it fits into your life. See? The Bible's a picture book. It lays out for you and for me the great concepts. Third Wednesday night when we meet here, I want to I wanna help lay out for you. And, and I know as well as I'm standing here, <coughs> For some of you, you know, it'll just be another, another round of times, but I want to lay out for those of you who want to make next year different than this year. Some of you have made some tremendous strides and some tremendous things in your life. Now here's the part that you've got to get to. How do you stay continually at that table eating his bread and allow the Holy Spirit of God to do the work for you? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I didn't coordinate this. Tell you the truth, I didn't even think about it till I got to this point today. Never even put it together throughout the week. I just saw it this today as I'm coming through this thing and God opened it up. I'm going to show you how to do that. Because you have to understand to have the right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know as well as I'm standing here, even on our own church, some of you, that'll just be a, you know, just something that, you know what, you'll come and do it and be out of here and it won't mean anything. But show me it will. And that's the ones that you want to focus on. So you come that night, and may I suggest this? I suggest that <clears throat> so we can expedite everything and get everything on, a, on an even par and get moving. We don't have to spend a lot of time fighting the Holy Spirit of God. I suggest that, you know, today's Sunday. We've got Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And Wednesday night, we're going to meet together. I suggest to you that this Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you, you really try to read through the Song of Solomon this week. It's only eight chapters. Spend some time, and then spend some time, and you won't understand most of it. Maybe you won't understand all of it, but that's okay. 
I want to I wanna sow the seed. I want to make the ground fertile. And in that thing, even tell God, be honest. Say, God, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't know what for sure I'm reading. I don't know what all this means. But I know in this book lies the relationship that I want to have with you. So, Lord, even though I don't know what I'm reading, I want to go home. I want to go home at 1201, 2009, saying, I now know what I'm reading. And I want to build that relationship next year. I'll show you how to do it. We can forget UFOs in the Bible. We forget who killed JFK. We can forget the Antichrist and where he's at. Is he Obama? Who, where is he at? Forget that. All that means nothing if you don't have a working, working relationship between you and God and understand how it is. Now you'll have the opportunity, probably unlike any other time we'll ever have, where we can have that concentrated time. Don't get in a hurry. Come, we'll set up here like we do for Bible study. We'll get everybody in. We'll get going right at 6.30 as close as we can. <coughs> and we'll leave. Change people for 2009. I guarantee you, if that's what you're looking for. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, I love you. <coughs>